0: I love the Talking Guys Show. I hear two guys talking. 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 I hear two guys
1: talking.
2: two Two guys talking, I hear. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers! Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Mains.
3: Hi everyone, welcome back to the ScammerCast co-host, elder law attorney Curtis Bailey.
4: And I'm Art Maines, a licensed clinical social worker and the author of the book Scammed, Three Steps to Help Your Elder Parents and Yourself, and happy to be the co-host of the Scammercast.
3: Art, you know, uh, a lot of us are, are members of what are called the sandwich generation, right? We're, yes, we're, for sure. We're giving care to elderly people, maybe our parents, uh, even uh, grandparents, uh, as well as our own children.
4: Yes, for sure.
3: I've read statistics all over the place, but there are, could be as many as 90 million caregivers in the United States with 70% caring for someone that is over the age of 50. That's a staggering number.
4: It is a staggering number, and it takes a real emotional toll on people. When I, this comes up in my clinical work in counseling, it's so important to think in terms of resources and self-care and viewing this as a marathon rather than a sprint.
3: Yes, and our host today, Denise Brown, is going to provide us with a wealth of information that she has accumulated and shares with caregivers. Denise launched the website caregiving.com in 1996. It was the very first website to add online caregiving support groups, daily caregiving chats and blogs written by family caregivers, as well as video chats, podcasts, and online libraries of resources. Sponsored by Midwest Trust and Western Union. Denise, welcome.
0: Good
1: morning. Thank you so much for having me with you guys. I'm glad to be here.
3: Well, it's our pleasure, and thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the Scammer Cast. I just sort of gave our listeners a brief overview of your bio, but could you uh, let our listeners know a little bit more about you and how you got into this line of work? <laughs>
1: Sure. I started working with individuals who care for a family member in 1990 and was fascinated by their stories and wanted to help. And it's why I started a business to, in essence, provide insights, information, and inspiration. I happened upon this newfangled thing called the Internet in 1995. (laughs) And I thought, well, what the heck? Let's throw out a website and see what happens. And it's stuck. And it's really kind of fascinating because... What visitors and members of caregiving.com needed in 1996 is what they they need in 2016, and that is to connect with others who understand, to have relationships with people who comfort and support them. You guys will notice that in a caregiving situation, oftentimes family members and friends disappear. They so sure you do. are very isolated and lonely, and so what Circuiting.com offers is a way to create new relationships in your life, and it's relationships with people who are in a similar situation so they understand. They don't minimize what you're going through. They share what they're going through as well, and it's interesting how you don't leave your house, but you feel much less alone when you are able to connect with others who understand.
3: That's very true, and we, we definitely want to dive into that uh, today and and offer our listeners some some good insight that you've developed over the years about how to stay connected and, and how specifically you can do that through your website. Now, you're a published author, I understand?
1: Yes, yeah, so I've written several books. I have a series called Take Comfort, and they are short, little, almost like poems. That talk about the reality of a caregiving day, and that I do my best to sprinkle them with hope so that at the end of reading this really short piece, you feel like, okay, I can keep going. I can do it. Right. I can do it. I've written a book called The Caregiving Year, Six Stages to a Meaningful Journey, which breaks up the caregiving experience into six different stages, and it gives you keywords and action plans within each stage. So it's a way to put controls around a situation that feels completely out of control for you. And then my most recent book is After Caregiving Ends, A Guide to Beginning Again, because we know that there's a significant transition after your caree, the person you're caring for, dies. It's a book about closing out caregiving. There's a lot of books about closing out an estate and the paperwork around that and what happens after someone dies. But there's nothing really about how do you close out a caregiving experience? How do you reconcile? How do you come to terms with what has happened? How do you get back your body because you're so exhausted from so many years of really not sleeping that great? How do you reenter the world when your world really was so inside of a house. And the book is broken up into two sections. The first section is really information, tips, and ideas. And then the second section is interviews with former family caregivers. The first one is two weeks out after her family member's death. And the last one is 14 years out. And they each, at that moment in time, when I interviewed them, share what their life is like after caregiving ends. It's quite inspirational because you see the timeline that time does heal. right? And just knowing that gives you some motivation to keep going.
4: It's such I, a needed I book. I, I mean, I, think, I, I hear this from people all the time that once the caregiving is over, what then? So I'm so glad you wrote that book.
1: Yeah, and it's really about what is it that is the next stage of your life for you with what you learned from caregiving along with you. And the other part of the book talks about how do you take your grieving with you because grieving doesn't really give you a heads up when it's going to hit. There are moments when You just think, oh, my gosh, I just miss my carry so much. I didn't expect it would be in this moment. And you can feel like I can't go out because I don't know when the grief is going to strike. And so there's some suggestions about how do you move forward in your life and take grieving with you, not to fear it, but to say, okay, I've got coping strategies in place. So when that moment strikes, I know what I can do.
4: Brilliant. Sounds like a great book and covers so much needed territory.
1: Yeah, and
3: we will we will make sure to post links to uh, all of those books so that anyone who is interested can find them. So Denise, you also uh, are a caregiver yourself,
1: right? I am. I am I take care of my parents. Yeah. <laughs> and I I sound resigned because <laughs> oh my gosh, I got beat up a little bit last night, so I'm still feeling the after effects. We had a difficult family meeting last night. And I'm not sure what's going to happen, so we're in a state of flux.
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's that's a situation I hear and deal with so many times in my elder law practice when uh, I'm working with families, and it really is, I think, a challenge when... The caregiver is maybe kind of tossed into that role unexpectedly and now is not only dealing with the people they're caring for, the family members, but they're also dealing with their maybe siblings or, or children who have different perspectives on the issue right and and that can lead to some difficult times. Denise, how do you handle those kinds of difficult conversations?
1: Oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> a big topic It's the sixty four million dollar question, right. right. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. gosh. Well, I will tell you, it is the true test of patience. So my parents have been declining slowly until about a year and a half ago, and then the declines were more insignificant. My dad is 84. My mom is 81. My dad has bladder cancer. He was diagnosed in 2004, so we were involved in his treatment for 11 years, and then the cancer spread. So a year ago, he had his bladder, his kidney, his prostate, and his ureter removed. Oh, my. He also he also has skin cancer, and his skin cancer on the top of his head has been a significant problem, and so he had plastic surgery to remove the skin cancer on the top of his head this past summer. My mom had an internal bleed that started in July, and it led to a five-week hospitalization. She had... A third of her stomach removed. That was the only way they could start. They could stop the first bleed. Once we Mm. thought, oh, phew, we got through the surgery. A second bleed started. She had a seizure. I mean, everything that you could think of that could go wrong.
4: Yeah, I'm so sorry. Boy, that sounds awful. So
1: then, yeah, she went to rehab for five weeks, four weeks after her five week hospitalization, and they wanted to return home. My dad really felt the effects of the stress at the time that my mom was hospitalized. So when my mom went to a nursing home for rehab, I moved my dad into the assisted living part of the community so it would be easier for him to visit her and he wouldn't have to worry about meals, transportation. So when it was time for discharge, my dad did not want to return home. My mom did. Mm. And so I kind of forced the issue and, and move them to a retirement community in our suburb that we live in. Okay. And the meeting last night was about my mom saying, I hate it here and mm. I don't want to live here anymore.
5: Right. Oh, so boy.
1: the concern is my dad, he is doing well there. My mom is too, actually, but it's her, she hasn't caught up with where she is in life. And so she's in a tough place. She says she hates where she is. Really what she hates is where she is in her life. Right. And no matter where she were to move, there would be something that she hates about it. Right. So I'm trying to minimize the impact on my dad because he will only say, I just want your mom to be happy. To be
5: happy. Right. Yeah.
1: But we can't make mom happy.
5: Doesn't and sound like it.
1: During her hospitalization this past summer, she really panicked that she wasn't getting better. And she insisted that we transfer her to another hospital. I knew it was not a good move. I tried to explain that to her and she just said, nope, you're moving me. So we moved her and pretty much two hours after she arrived at the university hospital, she said, I hate it here and I want to go back to the other Uh, hospital. Oh
5: boy. Uh, uh,
1: (laughs) Oh, I didn't even get into that story. You could see where this is going. (laughs) I hate it here is what she said last night. I want to move somewhere else. But we know once she moves, she's going to say, I hate it here. I right. want to move back where I was. Yeah,
5: right.
3: Well, in the role of a caregiver, you just have to be unbelievably flexible and tolerant and patient, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I can only imagine yes. What, what, yes. Uh, what emotions you're feeling as the caregiver. And I'm sure that through your work at caregiving.com, you hear these kinds of stories routinely.
1: Yes, it's just not a straight road. And it's not even a crooked road. It is a road across the mountains, down ravines. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> we have to jump out of our car and it feels like the only thing we could do is ride a horse. I mean, it's just an <laughs> right. amazing, terrible journey at times. I mean, there's parts of it that you think, wow, this is fantastic. I spend this amazing time with my parents and have a connection with them that's unlike any connection I ever thought I would have. Right. I manage my dad's ostomy bag. So... I provide very personal, personal care, and during that time, it's when we have the most interesting conversations. I'll bet. So, yeah, so there's parts of it that have been fantastic, and then there's other parts I think, oh, oh, holy smokes.
4: <laughs> right, <laughs>
1: this right. Is, this is going to be the death of me. I think it's going to get me before it gets them.
4: <laughs> wow. Right. And this, of course, comes up these, these difficult family conversations and the rigors of the caregiving journey certainly touches on the world that we are looking at here at the Scammercast in terms of how do you manage a parent's risk factors for oh. these kinds of financial crimes and predatory scammers who are looking to rip people off.
1: I was thinking about something that happened with my folks a couple of years ago when they still lived in the house. Someone came to the door. Ten o'clock at night, my parents were actually in bed, and my dad got out of bed. And I can't Mm. even imagine how he heard the doorbell because he wouldn't have had his hearing aids in. Right. But somehow he heard. He got out of bed, answered the door, and he let a young woman into the house.
5: Uh oh.
1: And the young woman said, "I need money. I need money for a train ticket. I live down the block. If you can borrow me forty bucks tonight." You can come to my house tomorrow morning, and I'll give you the $40. Sure. Mm. So my dad gave her the 40 bucks, and you can imagine he went to her house the next morning, yeah. and they had no idea who this young woman was. Right.
4: Yeah. And that brings to mind our episode that we had with uh, Officer Melissa Doss, who right. spoke about these kinds of in-person scams and I would refer our listeners to that one. It's called The Cops Are Here, our visit with Officer Melissa Doss. And her point has always been, if a senior lets someone into their house, it's over. Something is going to happen. And in this case, your your dad got ripped off for 40 bucks. Not the worst thing in the world, but it's a violation and a betrayal.
1: Right. And my parents did not want to say anything. Yeah. But we happened to be out for dinner, and it was just the three of us. I have four siblings, but it, but I'm the one that spends the most time with my parents, it was just the three of us. And my mom kind of prodded him, you know, do you want to tell Denise about what happened? And he, you know, shook his hand and he said, please don't tell anyone that this happened.
5: Mm. And, you
1: know, as he's telling this story, I, I you know, I'm holding my breath. <laughs> I sure. am, you know, thinking, oh my heavens,
5: mm-hmm.
1: what, where is this going? And I was grateful it was only $40 because you could imagine what could have happened. Oh, yes. I mean, it could have just been worse. Yeah. And so I just said, please don't open the door at that time of night. Please just don't open the door to anyone you don't know. And he said, I know, I know, won't happen again, won't happen again. It hasn't happened again. But, you know, I was so caught up in what could have happened, it never occurred to me to tell them, let's call the police and report this. It never occurred to me. I was so shocked that now when I look back, I think, now why didn't we call the police to alert them so that my dad could have given a description of the woman. I'm sure she would not reappear in the neighborhood or the suburbs, but it would have been helpful if we had done that. And I just was not thinking
3: to do that. Certainly, uh, I I am sure that uh, that was something that this uh, person did on a routine basis, found trusting people who are willing to to open the door. And once uh, the door is open and she's in... uh, you know the keys to the kingdom have, have been given away so to that's speak. right yeah. that's right
4: and so but there it touches on that problem of underreporting a lot of seniors don't want to tell their caregiver or anyone in the family because of the embarrassment shame and stigma but then they don't want to tell the police again because they don't know whether that means that they're losing it and someone's going to take control of their money or put them somewhere they don't want to be it raises all of those fears but it is important to tell the police about these things. And I also encourage seniors to tell their neighbors that somebody's been in the neighborhood and this is what happened. But boy, that's a tough nut to crack to try to get them to do it.
1: Yeah, I love the idea of telling the neighbors because the our neighbors on one side are two elderly sisters. One takes care of the other. Mm. You know, one is in her 80s, the other is in her 90s.
5: Sure. So there you go. That
1: They would be vulnerable to something like that, too. The, you know, but shame—shame shame is such a silencer.
5: It really when we is. we feel
1: shame, we just close the lips. We don't want to share. We don't want to tell.
4: And that's one of the things that we most want to dispel here at the ScammerCast Cast is—is is the shame in getting victimized in this way. I mean, what essentially happened was your parents were mugged. I mean, this woman more or less forced her way in. Your dad let her in, but then she—it sounds like she got very forceful and intimidating—and said give me $40 right now. I mean, if they hadn't done it, don't you wonder what might have happened next?
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so thank goodness she got the money and left.
4: Thank goodness is right. Yeah. That's scary. That's quite a story.
1: It's interesting to think of them being vulnerable in their home in a safe suburb where the crime is low.
4: And these things happen all the time. Yeah,
1: you would never think it would happen. You would just not think, be careful in the neighborhood, I mean, you just would never think of that. And yet, right here in their neighborhood, in their house, as you say, they were mugged.
3: Yeah. Denise, I'm wondering, did you notice any change in him after that event? Other than the shame and and not wanting to, to tell you about it, did you notice any other changes?
5: I didn't. I didn't. Okay, Okay.
4: Okay. well, that's good, because yeah. sometimes it makes people extremely scared, and they've even become agoraphobic, fearful of going out after something like this, and they overcorrect in a sense, and, and they won't even let a legitimate repair person from the local utility who has the right photo ID and all of that stuff uh, into their house. So I'm glad that there weren't any lingering effects for your dad or your mom.
1: Right, yeah.
3: Well, Denise, tell us, tell our listeners a little more about the uh, resources that you offer through caregiving.com. I mean, uh, I've been on the website, and there's just a ton of great material. So share with our audience what what you do through the website.
1: So one of the things that is just fantastic is that there are three daily chats that anyone in a caregiving situation can participate in. So the chats happen at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We've just extended the chats to last about two hours, but really it's until the last chatter leaves.
5: (laughs) So it can last
1: longer. So, for instance, when I got home from the family meeting last night, I went into the chat room and spent a half hour just telling everybody what happened and really just venting. And that's the point of the chat room is just to go in and say, oh, my heavens, you will not believe what just happened, or you will not believe the day I had, or... Oh, boy, I'm really losing motivation. And we speak honestly. You know, another member last night who cares for her husband just said, Boy, I want to run away. And I thought, Gosh, I want to run away, too. Sure, yeah, sure. I'll pick sure. you up so we can run away together. Right. It, it, you know, it's overwhelming. And what helps is to be able to tell someone, I want to run away without someone saying, oh, no, you don't mean that. Well, you know what? We do. <laughs> We're In that moment, away, you do. But we mean it while we say it.
5: Sure. And
4: that's
1: what's nice about the chat room. So we have the three daily chats, and then we have specific chats for either a relationship or a disease process. So mm-hmm. we have a caring for spouses chat on Tuesday evening. We have a chat for those who are caring for a family member at end of life
5: mm-hmm. on
1: Wednesday evenings. We have another daily chat in the evenings for those in an after-caregiving situation. Mm -hmm. We have chats on Saturday mornings for caring for parents, long-distance caregiving. You get the idea. So you can go to caregiving.com, and if you look at the upper right-hand corner, if you just click on chat, you'll see the entire list of chats. And our chats typically are moderated by another member, so they're all volunteers. We do have some chats that are unmoderated, and it's just, Come on in and talk. But the members are very involved in participating on the website, which is fantastic. So I'm I'm it. I'm the one that does everything on the website with the help of these great members who get involved and say, hey, I want to help. And then they moderate a chat. They have an idea for a chat that they want to lead. And I think that's always great, too. And they take ownership not only of their chat, but of the website, too which is terrific.
4: And so where would somebody go? Which chat would be right for someone who maybe was dealing with a parent who's getting ripped off or who has been ripped off and they're they're working on the uh, recovery phase. Where, where might which chat would they go to?
1: So they're welcome to go to any of the daily chats. Okay. That would be the place to okay. start.
4: And does this topic come up from time to time on caregiving.com?
1: It comes up in terms of other family members taking advantage of an older adult, of a of a senior, right. of a parent, and typically it's a family member who is experiencing personal problems.
5: Yeah,
1: it's the drug user, you know, the substance abuse. Right, down on their luck brother who can't keep a job.
4: Yeah, we call those the underfunctioning folks. The
1: underfunctioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. looking to mom and dad too save them, rescue them. Right. Always be the bank account. That's the that's the one that comes up that it's not necessarily the strangers that are taking advantage, it's the other family members that are taking advantage.
4: And that's so devastating for parents and for the others in the family because it's such a gigantic betrayal.
1: And it's hard to figure out what to do about it too because you know the parent feels a responsibility to the adult child.
5: Yeah. And the yeah.
1: parent is already experiencing their own challenges. Yeah. And, you know, how do you say to a parent, well, you've got to just cut Billy off.
5: <laughs> you know,
1: he's just taking advantage of you because it's hard to, you feel like you're adding to the heartbreak, heartbreak mm-hmm. that your, your Carrie is already experiencing heartache and here you are. Speaking the truth and the truth is what hurts.
3: Right. And right.
1: hate to be the bearer of that bad
3: news. Yeah, you know, I see it uh, frequently in my law practice where one of the adult children is uh, exploiting mom or dad and um, his or her sibling finds out and and tries to come in and it's just exceedingly difficult and unfortunately the law doesn't really have I think good options i mean there are options obviously but those options are guardianship or adult protective services or 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 go to the prosecutor's office well that's again the same in the same way it's it's awful simple for that child to tell mom or dad to cut billy off but Mm -hmm. in that in that same vein it's hard to tell one sibling to report another sibling to the prosecutor to the police right
1: oh it's terrible yeah Terrible. It's terrible.
4: So what do you yeah, think I, about in terms of how to prevent that sort of thing? Do you have thoughts from your experience in, in caregiving and with caregiving.com about ways to sort of put a firewall around mom and dad from the underfunctioning functioning folks? Well, I
1: think it's always good to have a smart choice for the person who holds the durable power of attorney for finances.
4: Right. Right.
3: And a power of attorney, again, just to let everybody know is, is a legal document that mom or dad sign, appointing an agent to be able to take financial steps and make financial decisions for mom or dad if mom or dad can't do so themselves. So yeah, that you're, you're absolutely right. I always, I always counsel people. It's the choice of your agent is the single most important decision that you will make when it comes to estate planning.
1: And what I find is that oftentimes people just wait too long. Yeah, Mm, Sure. Even healthcare professionals, I have given a speech in the past about, do we need a POA for love? You know, how do we (laughs) present? Right, (laughs) right. Which is, I won't go into it, but it's kind of an interesting topic. But as I give that presentation to healthcare professionals who are in their 40s and 50s, I will say, who has already completed their durable power of attorney for healthcare and finances? And typically, out of a room of 20, it's me raising my hand and one other person. Wow. We wait too long to do these important documents. And if we get any pushback from our parents about it, we really kind of back off and think, well, they're not ready. And yet it's such a critical document. We just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. That's We're it. We're
4: that tomorrow
1: it. will be a good day
4: like today. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. And so as you also think about the resources that you have at caregiving.com, do, do you have ways that you support people in bringing this issue up with their parents and, and how to have those difficult conversations?
1: Part of it is covered in the caregiving year. So you can see the six stages when you go to caregiving.com. If you just click on six stages, it gives you a drop-down menu of what the six stages are, and there's prompts about how you have the conversation. We've done blog posts, podcasts, video chats about conversations. And one of the things that we try to do is talk about what is so hard to talk about. And in the chat room, people will come to the chat room with, how do I say, what do I do about, how can I manage this conversation? And I think, and you you guys will agree with this, that one of the things that we do as we talk about these topics, as we talk about how we talk about with our family members, right? right, we become the ones that say, okay, this is tough. I'm not managing this perfectly. I'm doing the best I can, and here's what I said. Here's what I said. Oftentimes, we forget that communication not only can sometimes be the problem, but it really often is the solution. It's the communication. It's starting the conversation. It's understanding but the conversation is a process. It's not just one five-minute conversation yeah. and we're done.
4: Yeah. It's Boy, I wish
1: ongoing conversation.
4: I wish we could put that on a billboard. That <laughs> is absolutely right. It, it's a process. It's ongoing. You've got to bring a lot of patience and empathy and humor and compassion to the whole thing. And there's just a ton of emotion around these conversations.
1: Yeah. It's hard not to take it personally, too, right? Right. <laughs> we get uh, so invested emotionally that we think, oh, my gosh. You know, I think with my parents, I think, oh, my gosh, I've done so much and I've done so much to keep you well.
5: Yeah. Why can't
1: you see that, Mom? It's hard not to just be so hurt by it.
5: Yeah. And yet
1: I have to remember it's where she is in her process. That's right. It has yeah. nothing to do with me. It's just about where she is in her process. But boy, keeping that perspective is hard. Yeah.
3: Just want to remind everyone we're visiting with Denise Brown from Caregiving.com. When we come back from break, we are going to uh, dig into those six stages that she's talked about and talk more about how to have that difficult conversation. So we'll be right back.
2: It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at scammercast.com and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back.
0: A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years even more than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The Discipline to Grow. The strength of experience. The ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. There was a day when the villain was easy to spy. These days, different. Today, technology allows scammers to reach victims across the globe through mail, email, phone calls and even social media know what to look for so you can help protect yourself no matter where you are we remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person and to always verify before you send you work hard for your money don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days weeks or even a lifetime to work for western union move money for better join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? the fear, the adrenaline, the unknown. Law enforcement training for the arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints, ballistics, DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the US Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at LETAConference.com. That's L E T A Conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you. Behind the thin blue line. LETAConference.com. L E T A Conference.com. Go behind the badge.
2: Welcome back to Scammercast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Mains.
3: Welcome back, everyone. This is Curtis Bailey, your co host on Scammercast.com.
4: And this is Art Mains, your other co host on Scammercast.com. And we are talking today with Denise Brown of Caregiving.com, who is going to tell us a bit about more of the caregiver journey. She's laid out six stages of the caregiver journey. And uh, it's full of very rich information for anyone who is currently providing care for someone or who may be providing care for someone, which might include all of us at some (laughs) point. I've certainly been down that road with both my mom and my stepfather and, uh, I know you're going through it right now, Kurt.
3: Uh, Yes, indeed. You know, uh, I have parents that, uh, and I'm an only child, so uh, I don't have siblings, which is, uh, I guess a blessing and a curse, right? Denise, I'm wondering. It is a
1: blessing and a curse. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I didn't tell you the story of my older sister, so. Let's just, uh, I will leave it at that. It's a blessing and a curse. <laughs>
5: gotcha.
3: Gotcha. Un- understood. Uh, Denise, before we get into that six stages of the caregiver's journey, what have you seen over the years is the one or two biggest challenges that caregivers of their parents have to face?
1: The biggest challenges is having help that helps.
4: Okay. That's good. Having help that helps. Yeah. There's a lot of help that's not helpful, right?
1: Yeah, and the other part is accepting help. Yeah. So it's interesting how sometimes it's that you can't find the right help, and then sometimes you can't receive the help that's there.
4: What do you think blocks that for people? Why why are they reluctant to accept help?
1: So there's a couple things, I think, and that is the expectations that we have of ourselves that we should be able to do this. And I think sometimes we think, well, you know, my mom raised five kids, I should be able to take care of her. I shouldn't need any help. I think we are sometimes judgmental of the idea that we might need help. We think that's weak. We are weak if we need help. I think it is sometimes embarrassing to need help. I think of a webinar I participated in a few years ago, and it was with parents who care for children. And one of the participants talked about how many years it took her to get to the place where she was like, okay, I'm going to accept help. We need help for my daughter. And then what she went through the day before the help arrived, which was cleaning her house from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, we just feel like we have to have a clean house before we have help. And we never have a clean house, right? So I
4: clean. was going to say, I've never seen ready, my house completely well, house clean. clean.
5: <laughs>
3: you know, uh, something that you you said, Denise, really, really um, rang a bell for me, and, and that's the the notion that you should be able to do this on your own or you should know how to do it. And oftentimes I think the word should ought to be banned from the English <laughs> vocabulary because it's such a moral judgment. And when you place that on your own shoulders, it's easy to see why you can't accept the help.
1: Yeah. We have these expectations of ourselves. And we are in a position as nurturers to be the ones that provide. Yeah,
5: yeah, And
1: it is a complete change in who we are when we are the ones who receive. And change is hard for us. It's difficult for us to see ourselves in a different perspective. It's difficult for others in our lives to see us in a different perspective. Everything changes, right, when we accept help. Yeah. And that is tough. That is tough for us. It seems like such an easy step, and yet oftentimes it is our reaction to it, our perspective of it, our feelings about it that make it tough.
4: Absolutely right. So what do you recommend for people? How do they shift their view of caregiving and accepting help and, and all the things we're talking about?
1: It is a true life skill to ask for and receive help, and it's something that I think is so important to do early and often. The other thing that comes up, I think, when we ask for help and receive help is this is actually something that happened to me early on in caring for my parents. I delegated to my siblings so that I was not the only one. And there was a time when my older sister was involved, and she is a fantastic note taker during doctor's appointments. So when I went with my parents and took notes the notes were probably three lines. That was it. <laughs> That's <laughs> all I got. Right. And when my sister went with us, hers were three pages. And she had the diagnoses spelled correctly. She had the doctor's names spelled correctly. They were very thorough and just absolutely a work of art. And boy, that was a hit to my ego. Oh my gosh, my parents won't love me anymore because she is so much better at this than I am. Mm,
4: all the fear it comes up. It's
1: hard to fee- feel, is, it, is the word usurped, where you just feel like, oh my gosh, she took my thunder. Yes. She's sitting at the seat I used to have. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, I had a few moments where I thought, what am I thinking? Of course it's excellent that she's involved. It's it's amazing that she takes these fantastic notes. It benefits all of us. It's Let that, her have the spotlight.
4: And it's that pivot. Have it for most of us, pivoting from self-interest to the broader interest that's so hard because all the fear comes up, all the shame comes up, and if we can make that pivot, then the whole situation is so much better.
1: Right. It's not about me, it's about us. And the gains for me when I have help are I have time for myself, I have a break, and the gains for my parents are that they have involved adult children. I, I think of a member that I had on caregiving.com a few years ago. She was someone that really struggled with accepting help. It was, she was one of my clients as a life coach as well. I mean, we spent years working on her accepting help. And at the end of her mom's life, she, she really struggled with something that happened. On a Monday night, which was the last night that her mom ate a meal, so Betty, who cared for her mom, ran a support group at the local library. She knew her mom was declining. Her mom had been receiving hospice care for the past seven months. She talked about whether or not she should go to this support group meeting. Her husband, who was incredibly supportive, said, go, I'll take care of mom. So Betty went to the support group meeting, and her husband stayed home and fed his mother-in-law her last meal. So he spoon-fed his mother-in-law. Can you imagine what an amazing experience mm-hmm. that was for him? It's so profound. It was one of the only times he was directly involved in his mother-in-law's care, even though she had lived with them for almost 11 years. Yeah. That's how much Betty put up the wall about no one else can come into this caregiving situation. Yeah. The next morning her mom fell and then the significant decline happened and she died on Sunday. Yeah. Incredible. And Betty had a terrible time reconciling with the fact that she was not the one mm. who gave her mom her last meal.
5: Right. Right. And
1: so I had to give her that other perspective which is what you gave your husband is the story of how he helped your mom, Mm -hmm. he now has this incredible story he can tell for the rest of his life where he helped. He now has this memory of participating, of doing, of making a difference. That's a great gift you gave him. And sometimes we get selfish about these (laughs) gifts, right? We want to be the one that keeps them, that has them, that experiences them because we are the ones that have done so much. Yeah. And yet that selfishness keeps others from receiving these great gifts. And that's what I reminded myself when I was like, oh my gosh, she's a fantastic note-taker, and I'm terrible! <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: and Denise, you raised an interesting point there. The overwhelming majority of caregivers are females. Uh, is that something you see uh, through your work at caregiving.com?
1: Certainly, most of the members who join are women. However, there has been really, I would say in the past six months, a significant change in that it is starting to even out.
5: So we have
1: men who come to the chat room. They are still outnumbered, Mm -hmm. but they are active in the chat room. They are active in the community. They blog. And I think that we're going to see the numbers even out. It is spouses who are caring for their wives, it is adult sons caring for their parents, Right. and I think that we sometimes get caught up in the gender part of it, and I often think it's more of a personality issue. So certainly women were nurturers that we've been the majority, but I, I really think that that is going to stabilize and become much more even in numbers with men.
5: Right, right. Well,
0: that's
3: it's, good to hear. That is interesting. Interesting observation. Well, let's, uh, Denise, talk about the uh, six stages of the caregiving years. Uh, you've got this laid out wonderfully on your website at caregiving.com, and uh, as we've said before, we will post a link on the show notes page. But, Denise, take us through, if you would, the, the six
5: stages.
1: Sure. So I actually came up with this idea in 1997. I had the website up for about a year, and people were sending me emails and asking me pretty much the same questions. And I thought, well, what is an answer I could give that's not a ma- an answer about a moment in time, but an answer about the experience? So I thought about how Alzheimer's is staged right. and how that mm-hmm. provides comfort to someone who's caring for a family member with that disease because there's so many unknowns. So I sat down and started thinking about, well, what would be the staging of the experience so I staged it based on the intensity, because we know that caregiving intensifies over, over a period of time. And I tried to create a framework that's flexible, so that maybe you go through all six stages, maybe you start in stage three, which is the entrenched caregiver, but you have tools and ideas and perspectives that help you regardless of where you are. One of the things that I started with is the expectant caregiver. That's the first stage where you expect that in the future, someone will need your care. And really, we're all expectant caregivers. It's just that we don't realize that. And if we do, just think about how much we can prepare and be proactive about, especially with conversation. I mean, the conversations that we want to have with our loved ones about end of life or when we're not at end of life,
5: right.
1: when we can share what our values are, when we can share what's important to us, when we can share what our priorities are. The opportunities are now. And wouldn't it be great if we all were comfortable just having conversations that can feel difficult and still we do it?
4: That's ex- absolute excellent in so many ways because you're right. Everyone is going to be a caregiver at some point in their lives. And in terms of the legal documents we were talking about earlier, the power of attorney, and how you begin to structure your finances and, and the permissions that you give people, uh, this is great information and great advice. What's the next stage?
1: So the next stage is when you just start to, to help. So it could be that a couple times a week, maybe you're doing grocery shopping, maybe you're stopping on a Sunday to organize the pills for the week. You're just starting to help out. And in each stage, there's a keyword. So the keyword in the first stage is to ask, right? So you're expecting that it's going to happen. You're going to ask questions. And you're going to keep that idea of asking as you continue into the stages. So you're going to take keywords with you. So you take ask into the second stage, which is all about finding. And in the second stage, it's about experimenting, getting your feet wet, And really what you're getting comfortable with is things not going right.
5: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. so awful.
4: Murphy's Law.
1: Yeah, right. But if you can get used to trying services and them not working and moving on, it is so helpful. So it's not the end of the world when something doesn't work. This is when you really start to get into asking for help and then not being attached to the outcome but being okay within the process. Okay, well, I I asked. I tried. I found. We experimented. It didn't work. Now we know. Right. We've gained some information that's helpful. Let's try something else.
3: Yeah, I, I've often heard that, uh, called, uh, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just the, the, it's just, yeah. it's the process, yeah. not the outcome. That's, it's so hard, I think, for us to remember that, but, uh, because we have, uh, expectations of what the outcome will be. And when they don't, when they don't match, there's obviously disappointment and then anger, perhaps, and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But it, it's really being comfortable with the process and the outcome will be what the outcome is.
4: And I would nominate that for one of the uh, key life skills, especially as we move into middle of life. Got to be uncomfortable. Got to be comfortable with discomfort.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, experimenting. I think that we often forget that experimenting is such a critical skill to use Mm -hmm. because what it does is it keeps us moving. With an experiment, we just see. We're curious. We're observing. We're going to just see what happens. And then if it doesn't happen in the way that we expect it, we think, oh, wow, okay, well, now I know. And we keep going. It's the idea that we can keep going that's so helpful. We don't want to stop. We don't want to get stuck. Right. We just want to try it and see what happens and then keep going.
3: So then after that stage, uh, Denise, what comes next?
1: So then you're entrenched. Caregiving is about something that happens every day. And it could be that you're the one that provides care on a daily basis. It could be the one that you're the one that oversees or manages. Right. But caregiving is ever present. You're worried about it. You're feeling stressed about it. You're feeling the pressure of it. And the key word in this stage is to receive. You receive support. You receive help. You receive ideas. The idea about this stage is that it's all about just getting through it. And what's interesting about support is that oftentimes people will wait until their worst day to reach out for support. <laughs> right. And that is the worst day to try to find support because you are too stressed out. So I really encourage people to think about setting up their support system on a good day because when you join a website when you're not stressed out, it's easy to join the website. If you go to a support group meeting, in a new location, it's easy to find it because you're not stressed out. But boy, when you are stressed out, you're trying to get to a church 20 miles from your house that you've never been to before for a support group. It is going to be stressful for you.
5: Sure. If you're
1: trying to figure out how to register, and it's an easy process until you're stressed out, it is going to feel too overwhelming, and you're going to give up. Right. right? You're going to just think, I can't do this.
5: <laughs> so he- the
1: best way to look for your su- to set up your support system is on your best day.
5: Yeah.
4: Good advice.
3: Denise, what what are sort of the key elements to a having a good support network or support team for a caregiver?
1: I think it's the the people or the place that you can speak your truth and your truth is not judged or minimized or questioned.
4: You're just accepted as you are.
1: Caregiving. Yeah. We have truths in caregiving that can feel like difficult truths for us. And it's interesting, it's about shame again, too, so mm-hmm. you feel like, oh, I can't tell the truth, right? because it looks bad on me, no one will understand, but yet holding in that truth becomes part of your stress, and it affects your health, it becomes the unhealthy aspect of
5: the experience.
3: So, so that, that can, in practical terms, that can be a church or parish or, or synagogue, uh, some kind of... Faith-based group, or it could just be a neighborhood support group, or even an online support group. Is that um, what your experience? Yeah. Has been? Yeah. Okay.
5: It could. Yeah.
1: It could be your dog that yeah. you talk to when you go out right. for a daily walk. Yeah. Right. Right. It's right. Whoever it's whoever accepts your truth.
5: Right.
4: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I really love that because yeah. uh, that's something that comes up a lot in my work, is people need somewhere to go to just dump their truth and and not be judged for it or feel guilty about it. But caregiving, as with so many things in life, gives rise to so many disparate emotions, and it's hard to make sense of them.
1: Yes, right. Very confusing. It's very confusing.
3: Okay, uh, after the entrenched caregiver, uh, what's the next stage, Denise?
1: So then you move into the pragmatic stage, and I think of this as moving from Panic to purpose. So when you're entrenched, there's a lot of panicking, Mm -hmm. right? How am I going to do this? When am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. Why am I doing this? And then as you experience all that happens, you get used to it, and then you move to the pragmatic stage where you're not surprised by people who disappear. You're not surprised by the red tape of the healthcare system. (laughs) You're not surprised by what happens during a hospitalization. And now this is when you move into, okay, so this is a purposeful experience. I am doing something that is very meaningful. Look at the difference that I make in my Carrie's life. Look at what happens because of my involvement. And because you're calm and pragmatic, the purpose comes in. And this is when you really welcome relationships. The new relationships you formed, the relationship with your Carrie which evolves and changes, and the relationship with yourself.
4: Brilliant.
3: That's uh, the fourth stage. What's the fifth?
1: From the fourth stage, you move into the transitioning stage. And this is where you're going to let go. So it is the end, however long the end lasts. And what's so challenging about this stage is that you're going to move from doing to being. So caregiving is all about doing, right? Right.
4: Doing, 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 that's for sure.
1: Yes. Dan, you've probably saved your Carrie's life numerous times because you know what to do. And at the end, you have to let go, which means that you're not going to be as demanding of treatments and cures. It is a different perspective. You're still providing care, but it's a different way. So you're moving from doing to being. And the key word in this stage is to allow. So you allow the natural progression of the life cycle.
4: So deeply rooted in acceptance of life as it is. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. You let go of the idea that you can save your carry one last time. You let go of the ability to always solve a problem. Right. And you allow what will happen.
3: And then the uh, the final stage, Denise?
1: Is the Godspeed caregiver, and this is after caregiving has ended, it's usually a couple years after a Carrie's death, where you think,
0: wow,
1: look at what I did. I get it now. And so you take that wisdom and life lessons into the next stage of your life, and you think, I know there's another purpose for me. I know that there's another way for me to have a profound impact on others in my life because... I just
3: did it. That's a fantastic uh, framework uh, that really gives a a perspective to the caregiving journey that uh, I'm sure not many caregivers have really thought about.
4: And and it captures the essence of uh, there's a kind of personal development journey that goes on for the caregiver and probably as well as the caree as they move through each of these six stages. So I'm very grateful to you for having laid this out and I'll be delighted to send people in my clinical practice over to caregiving.com so they can learn more about this because you've got videos for each of these stages and then um, you've got books that you have links for uh, right there on the page. So, I mean, this is just an enormous resource for people. And, again, I'm so grateful that you've laid all this out.
1: I was young when I did it, Mm -hmm. too. You know, it was 20 years ago. I think, wow, how did I know that? And I remember writing it, and I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be some of my life's best work. And I remember showing it to my dad. He was the editor of the Sears catalog. That was his job. Really? And he was my editor. So my mom was my proofreader. My dad was my editor. I said, (laughs) Dad, here it is. What do you think? I said, it is going to be one of the best things I do in my life. He was like, wow. Okay, Yeah. take a look.
5: <laughs>
4: oh, that's, that's marvelous. Yeah, yeah. And how cool that it's a, a, it was and is a family uh, endeavor. I think that's fantastic.
3: Yeah,
5: yeah absolutely.
3: Yeah. As we head towards uh, wrapping up this uh, episode, are there any final thoughts that you or asks of our audience that you would like to convey?
1: I would just say to know that you have a great story in your caregiving experience and to look for the stories within your day because there are mysteries in caregiving, there are dramas in caregiving, there are comedies, and sometimes (laughs) all of them happen in one day. that's for sure. There are great stories in caregiving, and just listen and look for those stories and then somehow capture them. Write them in a journal, start a blog on caregiving.com, take a photo, take a video, Capture those caregiving stories because that's your gold. And someday you're going to look back on that and think,
5: "Oh, I'm so glad I captured that." So true.
3: Yeah, that's a wonderful thought. You know, oftentimes on the ScammerCast, we're talking about uh, identity theft and fraud, and <laughs> you know, things to do and right. But you know, one of the core components that uh, we have been focusing on here are the emotions. The emotions of the scam victims the, and now yeah. really diving into the emotions of the caregiver, somebody trying to help their their senior loved one maybe navigate a fraud or scam situation or prevent one.
4: Right. And, and how it fits into the overall uh, stages that you've laid out here, that it, it's a part of kind of a protective role or it, it's a role of helping them to come back after being ripped off and those sorts of things. So it fits very nicely into your six-stage process and how you have resources available to you. And we certainly hope that we here at the ScammerCast are one of those resources so that if this experience comes into your life, you know where to turn. Uh, so, Denise, I'm so grateful that you've been a part of the ScammerCast and uh, Please tell our listeners again how they can find you and connect with you.
1: So just come to caregiving.com. You can read my blog. You can listen to podcasts. You can listen to video chats. And I am usually in the evening chat. So you're welcome to jump jump into the chat room at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. Central Time and connect
3: with me there. It's fantastic. We've been visiting today with Denise Brown from caregiving.com and want to remind all of our listeners to check out the show notes. We'll have links to caregiving.com and to Denise there as well as her books.
4: And if you like this episode of the ScammerCast, please leave us a comment at scammercast.com or on our Facebook page at uh, ScammerCast. And uh, also tell a friend. Please let people know that are your colleagues, your family, your friends about us here at ScammerCast because we'd love to have them become a part of our community here.
3: Until next time, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com.
4: And this is Art Mains, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And we want to remind you to help every day to hammer the scammers.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of the ScammerCast your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at scammercast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, hammer the scammers.
0: The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.